Welcome to the High Performance Business Solutions Podcast. This is Paul De La Garza, your host and coach. Join me in discovering the journey to become a better leader, a better sales professional, to take charge of your life with intention and vision, recognizing that within you lies the power to achieve and to live to the fullest. Today, I would like to welcome someone very, very special that's going to give us a very interesting academic, but yet very practically based approach and perspective in terms of what leadership is and how it really has so many applications and so many dynamics to it. I'm referring to Ms. Amy Edmondson. Ms. Edmondson is a Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. So folks, please pay attention. We're talking about the source itself. A chair established to support the study of human interactions that lead to creation of the successful enterprises that contribute to the betterment of society. That's essentially how I am reading this information from her bio. But I would like to also offer another aspect of Ms. Edmondson's uh, background. Before she started her academic career, she was director of research at Pecos River Learning Centers, where she worked on transformational change in large companies. And I got to tell you, this is a huge issue that I face as an executive coach with an alumni of my clients. It is my pleasure to welcome Ms. Amy C. Edmondson. Amy, welcome to the High Performance Business Solutions Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Amy, I'd like to start straight out because our listeners probably probably already peaked in curiosity. The Harvard Business School brings an extraordinary base of strength in credentials how did you become associated with, with, with Harvard? And tell us a little, bit, a little bit about yourself so that our listeners really can become introduced to you and, and who they're listening to. Sure. I, I was really lucky to stumble myself you know, into the position of director of research at Pecos River Learning Centers you know, uh, 25 years ago, I guess. And what that meant was I, I sort of was the right-hand person for Larry Wilson, who was the CEO and founder and previously founder of Wilson Learning Corporation, which was a global management and sales training company. And and when he had retired, he then started, you know, he then decided he didn't really like retirement and started this Pecos River Learning Center mm-hmm. where we did more intensive work with companies, you know, rather than sort of training for individuals in companies, um, wherever they were, the idea was to work with senior teams and, and then do, you know, change work that we would uh, escalate uh, through the organization. Right, right. And, and, you know, it was really interesting work. I loved the, the people. I loved the ideas. And I've, I found it so fascinating that I, and I had done, I had been an engineer before that. And, you know, it was, it was just sort of a different way of thinking. And at a certain point, I thought, gosh, I don't have education in this realm. I really should be, you know, I, I have no business being in this business. I better go back to school. So I kind of rolled up my sleeves and I applied to, I don't know why really, but I applied to PhD programs in organizational behavior. I thought that was the thing to do, part because I had met some, I'd met some very distinguished uh, thinkers through our work who were mm-hmm. professors at MIT and Harvard. And wow. lo and behold, I got accepted into one of these programs. I hadn't realized at the time because this was, um, you know, sort of uh, 1990, 1991-ish, that if you get in, 
you get a full scholarship and you get what's called a stipend, which is essentially a living wage. And mm -hmm. I could not have been more dumbfounded by that discovery. I mean, I, I could not believe that Harvard was going to pay me to go to school. And so I seized to look critically at the opportunity. I just jumped right in. And I didn't fully understand the, the way I ultimately came to understand that this was really the entry level job in an academic career. And that turned out to be a good thing for me because an academic career is about writing, research, teaching, right, right. writing, research, teaching. You know, it's this lovely set of very different activities, all of which I enjoyed very much and none of which I think I would be happy to do full time. Like I, you know, I, I, need, the, I need the variety. But, sure. the, but it was, you know, it just turned out to be a perfect fit for uh, for the things I like to do and 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 uh, in some cases do well and 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 so that led me to then get um, when you graduate from a PhD program especially at a top school you then can compete for professor jobs and I again great great good fortune I was offered a a position as an assistant professor here at Harvard Business School, and that's now 22 years ago. Wow! And um, and then you know, lo and behold, more good luck. I was I was promoted to associate professor, and then ultimately to full professor, and so I've now been here for a very long time. You keep on referring to the word luck. I mean, well, I, it's true. Uh, I, I, not for, not based on what I'm saying. I mean, you're looking well, at the credentials and the, and the work that the body of work that you've put forth. I'm, is amazing. I'm not going to so, deny I worked hard. Of course I, you have, but okay, with a now, smile. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I loved uh, it. Tell me about Buckminster Fuller. You <laughs> worked for this individual, and he brings to the table extraordinary, extraordinary philosophy in terms of leadership and so forth. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so when I when I graduated from college, I was obviously 21 or so, and and uh, and and Buckminster Fuller was. 85 and I had been lucky enough to hear him speak when I was in college and I was mesmerized by his message which in a nutshell was one of we human beings have a responsibility to use our minds to try to make things better and his particular interest was you know one of his many interests but the one he's best known for was how do we build better systems and and particularly in the built environment so that we use less energy and and create less waste you know so even back as early as the late 30s he was talking about um not he didn't use the word sustainability but he was talking about the environment he was talking about pollution he was talking about um ahead a, of his time in short a finite planet exactly so yeah. He was a really amazing person to know and to get to know and to spend time with. In his 80s, he was just still extremely creative and energetic and, and uh, I would even say full of joy and, and love of learning and curiosity. And so it was quite inspiring to work for him. I, I Basically, my job was developing mathematical solutions for different geodesic domes you were you were chief engineer for this man correct i was was and yeah. that, yes and so i built you know i did i did um i did math and i did uh, occasional full scale you know small scale okay. and then full scale models and uh, that that was that was a sort of great first job so i need to ask you a question you made a quantum leap in terms of disciplines between engineering to what where you delve today you know writing uh, 
papers and books relative to psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute and the fearless organization. First of yes all, yes and no. About, well, tell me about that. How did you do that? Well, you know, I, I, so I was always, I mean, in, in engineering, you're interested in making things better. Right. And, and you're fundamentally dealing with systems where there are various parts that fit together with various relationships between the parts and you think about design and you think about redesign and it's the same thing in my in my current field we 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 think about systems but i think about organizational systems and the parts or at least very important parts of the system are people and what what it what i came to realize in my early career was that i was more interested in the people than the machines or the structures and that's Maybe that's a weakness, um, or a failing, you know, as an in, as an engineer. But it was it was um, I just couldn't get enough of people. I thought they were so interesting. It and would be so clearly. A, a, <laughs> I wanted to. Yeah. I, mean, I shifted the problem solving to thinking about people systems rather than mechanical systems. Right, but it it, it as it relates to leadership, which is it, it appears to be this is the the area in which you really are focusing leadership and management. And you, you are a professor uh, of, of these two very important areas. It has been my experience, Amy, that when I talk to senior executives, the element of people is something that, depending on who you're speaking with, does not necessarily comprise one of the top, shall we say, priorities. They're, they're concerned about mission and shareholder value and growth year over year. And sometimes they forget that part of the mission is to really align that team behind that mission. And so for you to talk about engaging uh, on the people aspect, that's huge. So, Yes. And, and I think, you know, thoughtful executives realize that their desire to create value can only occur through people. There's no magic wand where I, I see some value we could create in the market and I'm just going to wave that wand and it's going to happen. Right. No, it's going to happen through people. And this is more true than ever. I mean, we live in a knowledge economy. We live in the knowledge era. So the the value we can create really can only happen when people are able to use their brains and and especially to work effectively together. When you say a knowledge economy... I think I understand what you're saying, but if you can clarify that for, for our listeners, because we, we have a saying that said, if you want your business to get better, if you want your company to get better, it starts with you. You have to get better. You have to become more knowledgeable. Could you elaborate on that principle? Because I want my listeners to walk away and say, you know what? That's, that, was, that was an aha moment. You know, whether you work on the front lines of you know automotive assembly or as a physician in a hospital or a financial services advisor or any number of other things you can name you're working with knowledge you're working with um with with expertise with ideas for improvement let's say with um you know deep industry expertise about something and you're taking that expertise and adding a little motivation and adding a little teamwork and producing something that's more valuable as a result of this organization existing. You know, so it's, it's all, there's very little in the modern economy that can just be done without thinking. 
if and you were to, yeah. oh, I, I beg your pardon, please continue. No, no, and, and certainly without motivation. We all oh, have question. choice. You know, we have choice about how much effort we put in, and it's largely invisible. You don't know whether I'm giving it my all. You know, you can't see it. So I, I right. you've got to sort of, you, you've got to find ways to inspire it. Amy, I'm going to ask you uh, perhaps a fundamental question um, that may level set some things here for our listeners. If I were to ask you, based on the body of work that you have positioned and, you know, mm. you're about to publish a, a document called Cross-Silo Leadership and Fieler's Organization, Psychological Safety, all these things that we want to talk about today, how would you, if, if, if somebody's asking you, said, Amy, how would you best define leadership? What would mm. you tell to someone mm. that is, you know, a newly appointed C-level executive and he or she wants to do really well, mm -hmm. but they want to have that kind of foundation and they look at you as one of the sources of building that foundation. How would you do it? I mean, leadership is the art of harnessing the efforts of others. And I like to add to that to achieve greatness. I mean, what, what's the point if you, wow. aren't, if you aren't ambitious, right? It, you know, why, why even get out of bed in the morning? Um, and, and I don't mean to overstate that, but it, if, You're in not. other words, please continue. <laughs> leadership is the activity that that people engage in that hopes to get something done you know but it, but you can but but there's a great humility there because you can only get it done through others you're not going to be able to assemble that car or run that you know have all those patients get treated um, by yourself you're not doing it you're only creating the structures and systems and culture that enables others to do their best work. And I, I really think there's two, you know, there's two um, big forces that leaders are responsible for. And one, the enabling is how do I inspire and motivate and, you know, create the conditions where people just internally want to do well on behalf of our mission. And the other big force is how do I get the roadblocks out of the way? You know, it's the, it's the obstacle removal part of the job, thinking um, day in and day out about how do I make it easy for people to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Very good. As you teach at Harvard, you are teaching students that are seeking uh, undergraduate work and postgraduate work, but do you also teach, and that was a question, is that correct? Well, no, we do not have any undergraduates. Um, How about postgraduate? Do you do that? Well, we have MBAs, so we have postgraduates. Okay, perfect. We have PhDs and MBAs, and then a, a great number of executives as well. Ec that's where I was going. The executives. Let's go there for a minute. Sure. These are individuals that come to you, and a lot of them have preconceived ideas, some of them very spot-on and accurate. Mm. Others, not so much. What has been your experience? And, and tell me what you think in corporate America or in the business sector today in terms of the context of leadership. What do you think is the greatest challenge that senior executives are dealing with for which you could actually support and provide some mm. levels of direction or answers? Well, I think the greatest challenge is that our old... You know, our, our many leaders, many executives have, have you know, sort of grown up in an era where the mental models are out of sync with the modern reality. And let me be clear, the modern reality is 
most companies are operating in what the U.S. Army War College calls a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, V-U-C-A. <laughs> and if you think about it, just logically for a moment, you know, if the world really is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, mm -hmm. then managing by directive and fear and, you know, you better deliver or else right. uh, doesn't work very well. Um, n nobody, you know, nobody ever did their best work in a state of fear. Right. Uh, nobody ever, um, you know, invented anything when there was a tiger chasing them. So you've got to sort of stop and reevaluate your basic theories of, of human behavior and recognize that your job is inspirer in chief, you know, boundary remover in chief um, to, to figure out how do you create the conditions where improvement happens, where innovation happens, you know, and where collaboration happens. Amy, do you think that in broad strokes, speaking in broad strokes approach, do you think that the psychological maturity of the executives today accommodates what you're proposing or are we still experiencing hmm. people that are engaging in the like the tiger approach and they say you know what yeah that's that's well and good but i've got a mission to accomplish yeah. and they better do what i say otherwise i think we we see both we see mm -hmm. both out there um, and we now increasingly see evidence of how poorly the latter approach is performing uh, the latter approach being the you better do it you know my way or the right, highway right. Um, and we see it in a handful of very visible cases like Wells Fargo and VW and and increasing you know recently the New York Times article on on Boeing uh, and you know fear-based um, workplaces where employees felt if they reported uh, problems they'd get fired or reprimanded severely Good heavens. that's you know that ought to that ought to make anyone who gets on a plane um, pretty anxious no kidding the reputational currency that this has cost Boeing is amazing amazing yes yeah, so that's Good market God. value that just goes out the window out the window overnight and and you don't have you know fortunately well I mean the there have been um, the seven the seven three seven maxes of course have had these tragic um, outcomes um, and the new news is saying the the problem may extend beyond that and that's a lot of reputational cost uh, but they still have time I think you know they they still have the opportunity to turn it around and there are many you know the the VW scandal with the with the emissions and the diesel yeah, engine the, and, and, the, so and the software and stuff like yeah, yes, yeah yes. just vast you know those those are vast reputational costs but also the, the also economic costs when some of these executives come in do they come in to you with clear points of pain that they want to resolve through your courses or is it just simply a, a process of trying to sharpen the axe so to speak I think a little of both. And, and you know, if you say, well, how do you get someone who thinks they're right? And most of us think we're right. You know, yeah. they come yeah. in and they think their theory is working. They think they're right. Uh, how do you get them to sort of um, perhaps adopt a different point of view? The, the approach that I use and the approach that we really use quite extensively at Harvard Business School in general is the case study. It's, an, it's, it's really an opportunity to take people on a field trip. You know, to, and not a literal field trip, but a but a metaphorical field trip. We will now spend the next 90 minutes taking a deep dive into 
you know, VW or NASA or, you know, you get to kind of get in nitty gritty detail exposed to someone else's challenges. And when this works well, and it usually does, there are aha moments in which people suddenly realize, oh, this is us. You know, mm -hmm, we, ha mm -hmm. we have the same issue. We are at risk in the same way. And, um, and, and, you know, and then you really have their attention and they want to know, how do you fix it? You know, there, there have been some behaviors that have been typically associated to gender um, in times mm -hmm. past. In other words, and, and this is in the context of leadership, mm -hmm. where you have individuals that, for example, um, females that reach C-level or executive mm -hmm. level, and they take the approach that is considerably more, shall we say, uh, of validation and a level of empowerment and engagement and, and, and more of a give and take. And it has been my experience in speaking with some, some leaders that their culture has prompted them to start, gravi start gravitating toward those kind of behaviors. To what extent are you seeing some of that? And can you elaborate if that's part of the protocol or the curriculum that you impart? Um, you know, I do. I do think that people can uh, become more expansive in their thinking and in their behaviors when they have a timeout. You know, whether it's in an executive level course or working with a coach. I mean, that there's that opportunity to step back and entertain the possibility of some new approaches and and new behaviors. And right. and and very often they really do advantage of that opportunity and sometimes you know sometimes even you know re reading a book uh, can take you in a new direction um, you know, help you see a new way I just finished reading uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book on leadership on and you know there's a lot of really specific um, reminders in there of, of how to listen and help people come to better decisions and and this is a presidential uh, biographer right? it is it's, it's yes, she's a presidential biographer, and yeah. it's just she takes four case studies. She takes Lincoln, FDR, um, Teddy Roosevelt, and and um, Lyndon Johnson, and just shows various moments in their lives how they how they um, did some pretty unusual things. I and and conversely, you know, going back to when you don't want to just you don't want to frighten people because they it's hard for them to be expansive and expand right right, right. but sometimes we do frighten them a little bit i mean not sure. not to be mean but what we do um it is a little frightening to be exposed to um a case study and realize oh, that could be that could be us yes well it's it's, it's a good word of warning as per se so right okay now let me switch gears for a second Fear, the fearless organization. This is a term that has been associated to you. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this. Well, the fearless organization is the title of my new book, right? right. Which just, just came out recently. And I wrote this book because I've been doing research uh, over the past 20 years that has essentially shown two things. Um, and, and one is that it turns out within organizations and across organizations, there are huge differences in the degree to which people are willing and able to bring their ideas and contributions to the workplace. 
right? It's, it's you know, in many workplaces, people are just um, more focused on self-protection right. than self-expression. And typically it's, this happens when there's very little or in some cases, no validation of the individual. That's more right. Defensive. Yes. They're yes. not being validated. Correct. They are being, you know, they're being, um, they're being, and a, a lot is being asked of them. They feel that they're at risk, you know, whether it's of being fired or just not being appreciated or, you know, being rejected in some way. And they, and they keep their head down. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but in, in the knowledge era, you don't want employees who are keeping their head down. I mean, you, you want people who are willing to take risks, who are willing to say, hey, I don't think this is working very well, or I have an idea for how this could work better, or I'm in over my head, I need some help over here, right? right. If if people are not able to do those very small, very human things, um, your organization is at risk two kinds of risks. Risk one are sort of business failures or business shortcomings. And type two are human safety failures. And, and you know, ri risks that range from, you know, worker accidents to um, assaults uh, to, you know, to people's uh, dignity or persons mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in the workplace that, of course, we've heard too much about in the last um, year or so. And so, um, the, but what I found is that even though that's in many ways, sadly, the norm that people feel afraid to bring and express themselves at work, in some unusual workplaces, people do show up. I mean, roll up their sleeves and they're eager to help make it better, to participate on some great innovation team or whatever it is. They're there, um, they're there both for the excitement that the mission brings to them and for that feeling of satisfaction when they know they've contributed to making a good car or healing a patient. And, and my argument is no organization can really afford to have a fear-based workplace. And there's some pretty simple ways to go about, by the way, simple doesn't mean easy, but simple ways to go about making the workplace one in which people are more psychologically safe. Give us a couple, give us a couple of, pieces so, that uh, you would recommend. You recall that I used that term VUCA earlier. Yeah, you know, yes. Old, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. I think managers at all levels can go a long way by reminding us of what we're up against. You know, when you kind of call attention deliberately to the fact of uncertainty or ambiguity or interdependence, what you're doing is giving people the rationale. This is why we want to hear from you. We absolutely want to hear from you because you know what? I don't have a crystal ball. You will see things that I miss. You know, so you're sort of, um, I call this framing the work, but it's framing the work in such a way that people understand that you're serious. My voice matters. And then another simple thing to do is simply to ask more questions, ask good questions. You know, not threatening questions, not leading questions, but good questions. Like, Paul, what are you seeing out there? Hey, I know you get in touch with, I mean, you're face-to-face you're -face with customers often. What, what are you hearing? So you're saying leaders need to ask more questions yeah, of their teams. At all levels, you know, team leaders, CEOs, uh, branch bank managers, you know, leaders at any level of the organization need, need to ask more questions. And by the way, listen thoughtfully uh, to the answers. These are small gestures that go, I promise you, a long way toward letting people know that you 
actually are interested in what they're seeing, that you understand that their data are valid, and that you're curious. You know, you're curious and, and, um, and you're listening. Okay, so now I'm going to put you in a recruiting position, so to speak. Mm-hmm. If you are a senior executive, C-level, you're a COO mm-hmm. or CEO, what should, in order to build the culture that you have just very mm-hmm. succinctly described, what should a C-level executive, for that matter, any leader manager that is hiring, what should they look, what should be the attributes and qualities that they should look for in an individual? The things that cannot be taught, because the skills, mm-hmm. the skills can be taught, but what should they look for? Because here's a, here's a, here is what I have seen more often than not. Mm-hmm. When you have very high performers, Corporate cultures sometimes have a propensity of rewarding these high performers in particular fields, maybe a skill set of engineering or sales or just whatever that may be. They reward them with position and they put them in charge of 15, 20, 30 people. And these dear people have no idea how to spell leadership. (laughs) So I'm a C-level executive and I come to you and say, Amy, what am I looking for here? What quality should I be looking for? I mean, I think first and foremost, you're looking for a role. You're looking for people who can be role models, and and I start there because it's not, it's not very specific yet. But but in different industries and in different contexts, you know it. You know what that means. Sure, so absolutely. You, you're looking for people who, you know, they aren't just talking the talk; they're walking the walk, and. And their role models, meaning they are behaving in a way that you really would love other people to behave in. Now, that can be tricky because you might not have an opportunity to observe them in action, um, and maybe they're good in an interview and so forth. But, but that's what you're looking for. Now, I think you tend to see it or be able to detect it when, um, you know, in, in the degree to which people demonstrate respect for others and demonstrate respect for um, that which they don't know. And so this is a certain kind, I mean, of the, the word I'm going to use, and a lot of people don't like this word, but I think it's really important, is humility. And, and I think they, people get scared of that word because they think that means, oh, I have to, they, they equate it with I false modesty. Yeah. yeah, it's not about being submissive. It's about being realistic. I mean, think about it. Like, look ahead. Look into the future. Look at what we're up against. If you're not humble in the face of the challenges ahead, fundamentally, I don't think you're very aware, right? I mean, if you're really aware of what we're up against in any industry and in any leadership role, that will bring humility, Enough, you're smart first role, enough. role model and yep. humility. Those two humility, yeah. And and that comes in the very next thing that, that falls from that is curiosity. You know, if I'm humble and I'm yes. humble because of the challenge ahead, yes. that naturally goes along with curiosity. Like, huh, you know, I don't know everything. You know, the problem is our brains lie to us and they sort of tell us that we see reality in all its glory. They don't tell us, oh, you see a partial slice of reality filtered through your own biases and background. No, you know, I see, um, I see, I think I see everything and I think I know what's going on. I don't, I only know 
you know, some glimpse of what's going on. So you know, if just, I'm, just to add to what you just yeah. said in terms, forgive me for interrupting, but just to add to what you said about curiosity, I recently, I'm reading a book that is called uh, something like a night's, a night's dream to, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the <laughs> name of the book, but anyway, here, here's the one thing that struck me and I love it because I use it with my clients in terms mm. of humility, no less so you can learn more. Right, right. And, uh, yeah. Amy, that is so succinct and yet so yep. powerful. And, and powerful. Rare, exactly, yeah. because yep. when you are that humble, you, first of all, you're self-aware knowing that you may be the leader, but you're not necessarily the chief know-it-all. Right. A body of experience and knowledge within your team. And for you to be able to open the doors from a receptive perspective to allow that information to flow is going to be very, very critical. Nobody likes a know-it-all. Nobody actually wants to follow a know-it-all. So yes. A know-it-all cannot harness the efforts of others to achieve greatness. Because totally it, agree. Why should I? Why should I bother yes. when you're smarter than I am, you're better mm -hmm. than I am, you know more than I Why? Why should I even, you know, go out of my comfort zone to exert extra effort? Here's another term that has been associated to you psychological safety yes so psychological talk safety, to me about that that is fascinating to me you know it's it's the it's the absence of of interpersonal fear so psychological safety and i thought is, it was a great segue to bring that up <laughs> sure i mean it's the it's psychological safety is the belief that i will not be punished for speaking up with work relevant content of any kind you know, I can say, hey, this we're working on this engine pretty close to some loose particles that could get in there and make problems. Like I can say that and not only will you not reject me or dismiss me or yell at me, you will thank me. You will say, Amy, thank you for that clear line of sight. Right? That's psychological safety. It's a just and, and you know, when it's really present, it becomes all but taken for granted. When you when you speak to the current executives, in other words, people that are currently in senior positions, and you talk to them about psychological safety, is it implicit to them that this really requires a significant shift in their thinking and for that matter, even in the culture that they are essentially building? How do they respond to that? Yes, and I think that's it a is a huge quantum leap. Yeah, it's a, it's a big ask in a way. Yes. But I and so for that reason, I never, I never go in to say, "Here, I want to talk to you about psychological safety." I mean, that that's not high on their agenda, right? What, what, um, what I want to talk to you about is, here's what it takes to be excellent in today's very challenging I like it. market environment. Interesting. Right? I mean, and, and yeah, you want to know, right? Because I mean, every company that I work with are pretty good. I mean, and some of them are, are great, but it's, you always can be better. Um, and what here's what it takes to be excellent in a nutshell is unnatural. Right? Because what does it take? It takes people speaking up. It takes people uh, suppressing their ego for the greater good. It takes deep listening. Yeah. It takes incredible teamwork. All, all of those things. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we got them on a list on the wall and all that stuff. But really, I mean, in in reality, these are these are things that are hard for human beings. You know, we 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 want others to think well of us, but we you know we we have trouble taking interpersonal risks. We have trouble when people disagree with us and you know, all of those things. So what I, I, um, I like to help people think through 
the answer to the question, which is what is it going to take for us to be great? And it is not all that hard to get to the place where they realize the culture matters. You know, if our culture is not conducive to the kinds of behaviors we need to be, you know, happening here, if we're going to be great in a competitive market, then we got to change it. And whose job is it to change the culture? I mean, I think it doesn't take all that much time for their for them to realize that they own it. They own the culture almost, almost more than anything else. You think they, leaders realize that? I think they. Um, I think they get many so they get do. so focused on the mission that sometimes they forget that the culture. Yeah. Is a major component of achieving that mission. Well, just as some people say, you know, especially in the nonprofit world, they say no margin, no mission. It's no culture, no mission. I mean, you can't, you can't achieve the mission without a culture that is supportive of the behaviors that are needed to achieve the mission. Very good. Or you could achieve it, but it would cost a whole lot more. It would cost. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, you have recently or in the process of publishing a, 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 an effort that was a collaborative paper or, or publication cross, uh, called Cross-Silo Leadership. Yes. I'm fascinated by that title because it really implies so much. Uh, and frankly, the title itself Mm -hmm. It's almost mm -hmm. Im implies a solution. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, no, so tell us about that because yeah, that's this is, huge. This is an article with uh, my my colleagues and friends, uh, Tiziana Casciaro. She is mm -hmm. a professor at uh, Rotman, at, which is the business school at University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. Jin Jang, who is a professor, an assistant professor at INSEAD in, in France. And the three of us uh, teamed up over about a year ago to um, see whether we could kind of combine some of our research. Tiziana is a, a network scholar and, and Sujin has really looked at something called cultural brokers, you know, those people in organizations who can help people collaborate across boundaries. And of course, I've looked at um, psychological safety and teamwork and inquiry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we, the problem we sought to help address is the problem that every executive you will meet today recognizes the importance of breaking down silos so that people can you know collaborate better across boundaries uh, to better serve customers and to better innovate but saying you know recognizing the need for that is not the same as making it happen um, and helping make it happen is really hard and and we break it down into four four sort of um, leadership activities that people can can engage in you know at or near the top you know and, and one is to develop and deploy these cultural brokers to really celebrate them and cultural brokers can be people in a very literal sense you know that are that are bilingual or binational and you know can help people in different regions mm -hmm. um, work together or or they you know they're engineers who just have a, a deep understanding of how marketing people like to think so they can bridge those boundaries you know and they're every company has them but they don't always get the love they they need and deserve and you know get put to uh, to good use um, right right and, and then a second thing we talk about is just sort of helping people ask really good questions which you and I already talked about a little bit that that is an art and a science and um, quite often uh, it, can, it can be trained, and it and it's and it's worth training, um, and then and sort of helping people um, broaden their network vision, uh, with, with 
it's it's going to cause their network vision. Network it, vision. Tell me yeah, what meaning, that means. You know, most of us are are. Um, turns out, people in organizations, big organizations, especially. Um, they may not know who the individuals are in department X, but they know where they know the, they know where the group is. You know, they know, they know the people whom we should really be teaming up with to get something done. They just don't know who the individuals are, but someone else knows who they are. So kind of encouraging people to think in terms of broad clumps and clusters of people rather than in terms of just, um, you know, individuals. I might not have an immediate connection to someone important in the network, but I know someone who knows them. It's right? so a sort of thinking broadly about about the groups that we probably should be in better touch with, um, and then finally having the the um, learning to engage in perspective taking, so you can see the world through other people's eyes. These things aren't all mutually exclusive; they're a little bit interrelated. I but, would imagine, but they're all we we argue they're all some somewhat trainable and can help people uh, do this cross-silo work. How often do you see individuals or organizations that have these, in some cases, severe cases of silos where literally you've got such separation, so such polarization that clearly the, the organization is fractured? How often do you see this? Oh, all the time. I mean, I think most most organizations struggle with this because the very thing that we, you know, we, we develop the verticals to have good control systems and good training systems and, and good ways of sort of um, assessing performance and, and rewarding people and, and right. promoting people. And they, they work reasonably well for that. And, and that's good. All of that is good. Um, and yet, more and more of the work and more and more of the keys to success in today's world require the cross, the cross silo collaboration. And that part's hard. How do you get people to connect? I mean, you, you can have mutual accountabilities, you can have uh, cross section objectives, but isn't that an element of culture that has to start at the top? Yes, it is. And I think you, it has to start at the top. And I, and I think you can, um, you can, oh, what's the word sort of, in, you can experiment with cross silo projects, you know, pick some good people, pick a good project that matters to the organization and just bypass all the bureaucracy, get mm -hmm. them, you know, get them going on something, get some group going horizontally on something that matters and then celebrate it, publicize it and find ways to train other people in the skills to do that. But it is, as you point out, it's very cultural. It's meaning corporate culture. You can, you know, you can have a culture where that really is celebrated above and beyond the functional excellence. Historically, organizations were pretty much only, or at least, you know, very primarily interested in functional excellence. You've got to be, you know, you're a good finance person, you're a good marketing person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and those people were the heroes and they were celebrated and they were promoted. And, Today, we've got to make the heroes, and that's what culture is all about, is who are the heroes, make the heroes be the people who are breaking down boundaries to do new things and team up with people who are different from themselves. You know, Amy, I listen to you, and I can listen to you for about another three hours, but unfortunately, <laughs> I know that you don't have that kind of time. So, Nor do uh, you, I'm sure. No, well, perhaps, yes. But I would be willing to sacrifice my time because you 
are a treasure of knowledge and and i just want to tell you how much it is so appreciated for you to have taken the time to actually build you know to, to sit down and chat with, with with us here and and for our listeners to start really evaluating some of evaluating some of your perspectives that frankly are just spot on and so valuable in the context of leadership and, and across the board i wanted to ask you we talked about the fearless organization that book is out already can they can yes. the listeners pick it up it's at amazon out. it's on amazon i hope Beautiful. it's on your local bookstores but, okay excellent uh, but it's out it's not too long and i hope it's pretty useful okay and then the cross silo leadership that's a paper and they can pick this well that will be where? it's on the it's already published online on hbr HBR, for those people that don't know what that is, it's Harvard Business Review. Very good. And it will come out in the paper magazine very, very soon. Like May Outstanding. May 1. And Psychological Safety, is there, are there publications on this? Yes. Well, the Fearless Organization um, that, that covers, book, that. Um, covers that. In fact, that was Beautiful. the main reason I wrote that book was because I'd been talking about this for so many years and all of a sudden um, the time seemed to be right uh, to get it out there. Amy, uh, I would like to extend on behalf of uh, on behalf of uh, our listeners here. So I would like to extend an, extend an invitation because it, we have just scratched the surface of what is that brain of yours, and I would love to have an opportunity to speak with you again. We'd like to invite you back sometime in the next few months, if that's possible. We would love to 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 have you here with us again. Well, you're very kind. I'd love to. Oh, it, it would it would be our pleasure, and I'll speak on behalf of so many of the listeners with whom I correspond in that. They love some of the stuff that we've got, and I think they're going to love this. So, Amy Edmondson, thank you so, so very much. Congratulations on an extraordinary career. Congratulations on bringing such wonderful messages to the people that desperately need it, that being all of us. <laughs> and, <laughs> and thank you so much from my heart for the time that you have taken to be with us. This is Paul DeLaGarza signing off. Take care and be well. This has been a high-performance business solutions production.